it's amazing. If you really sit back and take some perspective and read the last book of the Bible, and you think about what we just did uh, in comparison to that, and and uh, what we it's. It is so significant to worship the Lord that we're going to spend eternity doing it. And so, uh, and so Sean and team, thank you very much for leading us this morning. Uh, if you are new here at Providence, just a welcome to you. We are glad that you're here. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Um, Romans chapter 10 uh, is, um, uh, uh, is, is a uh, challenging passage, and, uh, and if... Um, and so it's important for us to read it uh, slowly and clearly. If you don't have one with you, a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. And if you don't have one at home, we would love for you to take that home as a gift. But in that, um, in that Bible, it's on page 946. And so uh, I want to ask you to bow, let's pray, and let's ask the Lord uh, to uh, help us during this time. Father, your word tells us that when Jesus was on the earth, That he promised that when he left, that the Holy Spirit would come and would open up our eyes to the truth. And so this morning we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, a heart to understand, that you would be our teacher, that you would speak through weakness, and that you would help us, even though we're carrying so many things today in our mind, in our heart, our health, various relationships, work pressures, God, that you would help us, Lord, to focus and to see what you would have for us in this text. We thank you that you have recorded this in the scriptures for every generation, Lord, to read, to believe, to understand, and to apply. And so, God, this morning, I pray that you would be merciful and help us to do those things. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I think it's really important to know just a little bit about context, even before we read, um, anytime that you are in Romans 9, 10, or 11, it really is important that you understand that it was written in tremendous anguish. And that interprets how you're supposed to read it and feel about the text. You see, what we're told is in the Bible, at the very beginning of the Bible, is that God created mankind in his image to have a personal relationship with God, and then mankind chose to violate what God said is good for us by going our way and seeking to create a good that was outside of the bounds of what God said was good for us. And God called that sin. And then we're told that as a result of sin, that there's all these tremendous curses, one of which is death, which is a really bad one. Um, Another one is the earth would be cursed with thorns and thistles. And that was symbolic of the fact that work would ever be undone. That we would never be totally away from strain in our friendships. That, that, that things on the earth are broken and they're fallen. But the Bible says right there, while he's giving out the curses, that there was a message of hope, that there would be one that would be sent, a seed of woman, a person would be born, a man would be born, who even though Satan would strike at his heels, that he would crush the serpent's head. And yet what we're told is that Various, various uh, men came and left. Generations came and left. And we're waiting for this one. And eventually you get to chapter 12 of Genesis. And God looks down and he sees a man. His name is Abram. And Abram's worshiping idols at this time. He's not worshiping God. It's not like his righteousness has, 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 has magnetized God's attention to his life. And it says, I want to bless that one because of how good this one is. 
No, he's worshiping idols and God comes and he says, I'm still going to choose this one out of my grace and my mercy. And God comes to Abraham and he says to him these things. He says, I'm going to promise you some things. I am going to bless you. And I'm going to give you a land. And even though right now you're one and you don't have a child, you don't have a son, even to pass your name on, I am going to make a nation of people out of you. You look up into the sky and look and see. Count those stars if you can. And I promise you, your descendants will outnumber what you can count. And then the fourth promise was this. He said, among those descendants that will come from you, there will be one who will be the savior of the world, who will redeem mankind and bring things back into a right relationship with me. And this was the promise. And throughout the Old Testament, all the clues of the Old Testament, they all point to Jesus. And Jesus is born on the earth and he lives a perfectly righteous life before God. And in his righteousness, he went to a cross and died for our sin. He was buried and he rose from the dead. And what Paul is writing here is the very fact that instead of rejoicing that the Messiah had come and God had fulfilled his promise to Abraham, through the nation of Israel, that now Israel had not only rejected Jesus Christ, but had also rejected the very gospel that Paul has spent eight chapters in Romans seeking to describe. And so it tears him up. He's literally torn up over the fact that his his own countrymen, he's a Jewish man, that they're not believing in Jesus Christ. And so you can see some some of these words of anguish Chapter 9, verses 1, he says this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong adoption and the glory and covenants. And the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. So he's in anguish over the very people that this was promised to, that they're not believing what has actually taken place. You see in chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God... And seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And so here Paul is, after he gives us this incredible declaration of hope in chapter 8. And then chapter 12 comes in and he says, now in light of what God has made available to us, He's going to spend the last five chapters talking about how do we live on the earth in response to the worth and the work of Jesus Christ. And right in between those times, he spends three chapters and he unpacks the anguish in his own heart of how his own countrymen, the first recipients of the promise, are saying, I don't want any of it. I don't believe. Now you have to ask this question. I had to ask this question. In light of everything that you're carrying today, right? Like you came and there's work pressures and you may have sick kids or um, your spouse may be at home sick right now or 
or, or your marriage may be kind of rocky right now. And there's all these things that we carry when we come into this place. And I have to ask this question is this. Why should you care about Israel's unbelief 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this? I mean, some of you are probably like, gosh, I, I've really got this problem. I wish you would address this, not Israel's unbelief. Why it's important, though, Israel's relationship with God matters to you today. Because it is the theater where you and I are invited to go and sit and see our own spiritual reflection, to learn about our own heart and our own faith and our own sin and our own maker and our rebellion. For those of you who have read some of the Bible or maybe all of the Bible, has there ever been a time when you've been reading the Old Testament and you concluded that these people are just ridiculous? I mean, I can't say how many times I'm like, how, like, Chapter 10, this happens. In chapter 11, you're right back, and you're going to do it again? Like, how hard-hearted? And and then I started thinking, you know what? I I confess the sin today that I also confessed yesterday. You see, the historical Israel is placed within the Scriptures to give you a picture of what God sees in you and in me. And so it's, it's terribly important. Like, have you ever seen a movie where you could really identify with either a character or a plot or a part of it? Because it just seemed to tell a part of your story. You know, like, like I watch Braveheart and I think of George. You know, I think, you know, this is, this, this is his story, right? Well, not too long ago uh, on TV, um, I watched a movie. It's called King's Speech. I think that's what it was called. And it's a king, I forget who it is, I know it's terrible. Um, And he had a tremendous speech impediment. If you know uh, um, my story, uh, most of you do, is I grew up with a speech impediment. And so I'm sitting there watching this movie, and it it was incredible. Like, it really wasn't that enjoyable to me, because there were so many parts of it that I could identify with too closely to the pain that he was experiencing. And so it wasn't a joy, and yet I felt like Part of my life was being portrayed before me in somebody else. I say that for this reason. Israel's history is our spiritual movie. It talks about us. So not only today, but the next two weeks when we're in chapter 11, you need to remember this. And what our text today does is it reveals what Israel rejected so that you and I don't make the same mistake. Now, all of chapter 10, verses 5 through 21, is an illustration of verse 4. And so let's read verse 4, and then he's going to unpack verse 4 for us. Verse 4 says this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is what he wants to say, is that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Obeying good works, perfect obedience to this law is the path to righteousness. He's saying Christ is the end to that path. And then this is what he says. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss or the sea, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your heart, or mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. 
Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And now to finish, Paul's going to ask two questions. The first is, well, if this is the case, did Israel ever have the opportunity to hear this news? And second is, if they did, was it presented in a way that people could understand it? And so this is what he says. But I ask, have they not heard? Oh, indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? And first Moses says, I will make you jealous. Of those who are not a nation, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So what precisely is Israel rejecting that we should not? Three things. The first is this, is that Christ fulfills the law for righteousness in those who believe. Christ fulfills the law for righteousness in us, in those who believe. You see, when God created us, we saw in Romans chapter 1 and in Romans chapter 2 that God literally etched the law, his law upon our own heart and our conscience with its standard of righteousness and so that every person in every culture, there's certain actions that if you do it in that culture, all of us say, you know what? That's just not right. There's a natural instinct in our heart when we see things, whether it's on the news or we see things on the playground or we see things at church and our, or, 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 or in the world where we look at that and we make a judgment call of saying, you know what? That's not right. That's wrong. And that bears witness to the fact that there is a standard of righteousness and justice that's literally above all of us, that's been imprinted upon the human consciousness. So that when we see things, we go, you know what, that's not right. And God's saying, I know, I put that on your heart to know that that's not right. And as a result of that, though, the reality is we're all sinners. And so when sinners also have a conscience that bears witness to what is right and what is wrong, it causes sinners to feel guilty, to feel like something's missing, to feel empty, to feel like something's lacking. In history, is the human attempt to fill that hole. And some people try to fill it with, with God. And it's what he's saying here is there's two ways to do that. One's right and one's wrong. And so he starts with what's wrong. He actually says there's one path 
that some people take, and it's just like the path that Israel tried to take, and that is to try to fill this tank by law-abiding, perfect obedience. And what Paul does in verse 5 here is he reminds us that Moses actually spoke of this possibility all the way back in um, the, the uh, law by saying these words. He said, you know what, the fact is, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. Literally, if you have the capacity and if you actually fulfill it to where you can perfectly obey the law of God, then you will go to heaven. You can merit your way to God, is what verse 5 says. If you are perfect in every way. But the Bible tells us, in the first three chapters of Romans, tells us that there's not a single person, save one, who's walked this earth and who has been able to do that. And yet, there's a people that continue to try to do that, to merit their, their, their way before God and into God's presence. And this leads to the second path. And this is the path that Paul is teaching throughout Romans. It's this idea of we're justified by faith alone. That we're made righteous by placing our faith in the one person who's walked the earth in righteousness, and that is Jesus. And so to unpack this, what he's going to do, and it's sort of a confusing thing if you don't quite understand where he's drawing this from, is he's going to pull a text back from Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. And he's going to show how Christ is the fulfillment of that. And so the first thing I want to do is show you the text, okay? It's on the screen, and this is what it says, okay? This is what Moses wrote. He says, this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, well, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that we should say, well, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us so that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now notice how many times I underlined the word hear it and do it. He says, this command is not too hard. You can hear it and do it, hear it and do it. You can do it. And what Paul does is he picks this up and he goes, you know what, this is kind of strange. And it's strange because he looks at the words that says that this commandment is not too hard for you. And he recognized that this commandment has proven too hard for every single person that's ever walked the face of the earth. And so Paul is going, how is that? Oh, I know. And what he does is he recognized God's plan from the beginning, all the way back when Moses was speaking this, of how the commandment would be made easy for us so that we could do it, or that it could be done for us. And so I want you to notice what he does here. What Paul does is he begins to weave Christ into this text, okay? And so this, this, this uh, next uh, slide down, okay, it's, uh, there's, there's actually three sections of this that he writes about in Romans, okay? And so verse 12 says this. I believe this is the next slide. Come on, there you go. All right. It says this, okay? And so Moses writes, it is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Now, this is the verse that I just read, okay? 
Now notice what Paul does. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? And instead of talking about us needing to hear something and doing something, he inserts Christ incarnation. That is to bring Christ from heaven to earth. Next part of the text, okay? Verse 13 says this. Or verse uh, 13. One more back. There you go. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? And Paul says, or who will descend into the abyss or the sea? And then he takes out that we may hear it and do it. And he says, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. And so he says, look, this obedience that it's supposed to be so easy for you He's substituting the incarnation of Christ where Jesus took on flesh and came to the earth. He died, and then he's substituting the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that gets to the very last section. Verse 14 says this. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And Paul substitutes these words. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now what he's doing here is this. He's putting Christ where the command is. In every way, he's putting Christ where the command is. Now let's just say that, 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 that uh, you, you are on this basketball team, okay? And your coach comes to you. Totally knowledgeable that everyone on your team is terrible at free throw shooting. I mean terrible. And your coach comes and says, guess what, guys? I'm so excited about this. I just challenged right, the next high school over to a free throw shooting contest. Now, they're pretty good. And you're not. But Listen, you can hear this and you can do it. And all, the, all of a sudden, the team is saying, this is going to be terrible. Why would you ever challenge us to do something like this against another team? And then he says, now, what I didn't tell you is, is I've recruited Steph Curry to come and be on our basketball team. And he's just going to shoot all the free throws for us. This is sort of what Paul's saying. Is that Moses comes and he says, you know what? This is the command. You have to hit the free throw every time. You've got to hear it. And do it, and it's not too hard for you. And Paul comes in and he goes, you know why it's not too hard? Because Moses knew that God was going to be sending someone that was literally going to circumcise the heart. The Holy Spirit was going to live within us. And the righteousness of the one that would come to the earth in the incarnation, who would die and rise from the dead, would literally give his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, his perfect free throw shooting ability to those who believe in him. And this is what he's saying to us. Each time Moses refers to doing a commandment, Paul responds by saying Christ did the commandment. Paul puts the life of Christ in the place of our obedience to the commandments because the commandments were not too hard for Jesus. He did them and he's willing to give his righteousness to you if you'll believe in him. Isn't that amazing news? It's incredible to me. And so one point of application to This first point is this. Let us as a church family yield to God's terms of provision. I love even this sentence. We're told in Colossians that before we come to faith in Christ is that you and I are literally enemies with God at war and that he has his bow drawn against us. Now, normally when you surrender in war, there are terms of surrender. 
And if you read through the Old Testament, any, the terms of surrender normally were, well, you can surrender, but we're going to gouge out your eye and you're going to spend the rest of your life carrying our water and cutting stones for our building. You're going to become our slaves. You have no rights, but you'll live. These are the terms of surrender. And the amazing thing about God is this, is that even though that we were his opponents in our pride and our arrogance and our rebellion, instead of giving us terms of surrender, he gives us terms of provision. You believe in me. You lay down your arms and your works and I will give you, I will serve you for the rest of your life. And this is, this is why we call the gospel good news. Because you can't make this up. Listen, if I was writing the Bible, like I said, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to develop a gospel. This is not what I could come up with. It would be much more, well, it would be much more based on works. You see, Israel is our story. Israel refused God's terms of provision. Here Israel is, and so many people, they're literally drowning. And they won't reach out for the hand of their rescuer because they're too busy holding on to the swim manual. Well, if I could just learn to swim, but you're going down right now. Just reach out. There's a hand that's there for you. You see, they wanted to contribute to the rescue. And the question is this, is this your movie? Are you demanding to contribute? Are you yielding to God's terms of provision today? The second thing that Israel were told that they rejected, that we don't have to. Number two is that Christ will save everyone who calls on the name, calls on his name as Lord. He will save everyone who calls on his name as Lord. You see, some people look at that first and say, well, if Christ is going to fulfill all my righteousness, then it really doesn't matter how I live. And that's why he talks about this idea of lordship four times in the next three verses. That he's going to be the one to call the shots in our life. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, today there's going to be crowds of people that call on Jesus' name because they're having an emergency or because they hit their finger with a hammer, right? But their call is not driven by fear or, or, or by faith. It is driven by fear. It's driven by anger. And so the question is, how do we know that when our call to God, we look up and we say, Jesus, how do we know that it saves And what he says here is this. He goes, if you confess, it's call. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You see, a saved heart believes that Jesus is Lord and calls on Jesus as Lord, even if we grasp at that moment in time very little of what lordship over our life is going to mean and where it's going to take us for the rest of our life. But it recognizes and says, God, you're the rescuer. And if you would die for me with your life, that I can trust you with the rest of my life. The second thing I think that saving faith or saving that's this calling upon the Lord is that a saved heart believes facts about Jesus and confesses these facts to be true. Now, saving faith is more than facts, but it's certainly not less. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a historical fact that happened in space and time. And what it says here is that if you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can't be saved. 
says we have to literally believe that is true and then confess that with our mouth that that is true. I think there's another element of saving faith. It says where, where, where it believes Christ's promise is fulfilled in me. That literally, it's not just that I believe in something that happened way over there and way back then, but that what happened way over there and what happened way back then permeates my life today. You notice it says that all who call upon his Lord, that Jesus bestows his riches on all who call on him. And what I think this means is that saving faith rests in the security of his love. It enjoys knowing that they're loved. It, it, it's, it's, it, it recognizes that Jesus is bestowing currently the riches of his love upon us. You see, coming to God for salvation means believing on Christ in your heart, all that God has done for us, and then giving expression to that with your mouth by confessing him and calling on him as Lord. Even today, there's going to be, as I said earlier, 37 people that by their own testimony of of life are saying, I am trusting in Jesus Christ that he died and rose again and that that is applied in my life. It's confessing and calling upon him as Lord. And so the application, I think, for point two is let's yield to Christ as Lord. See, Israel refused to yield to Jesus because they saw him as inconsequential, like a firework that lights up the sky for two seconds and then fades into the darkness. But Jesus is the most consequential person that's ever been born. Jesus is Lord. He's our maker. He's the sovereign Lord and King of heaven and earth. He is literally the cornerstone over which every single person on the earth will bend or be broken. And so one of the things, just in terms of how do you practice the lordship of Christ? Let me just give you one example. Okay, This is just one thing I do. It's not the way to do this, but it's a way. At some point, nearly every morning, I pray and I say, God, I believe that you are the Lord of heaven and earth. And as such, you have authority over all things. And I gladly today submit my life to your authority over me. And after praying and laying my day before him, usually I say, now these are some of the things that are in front of me that I'm aware of. But ultimately, you know a lot more. And sometimes I'll just say, God, would you give me a game plan today? Is there anybody right now that you know that I need to call or write or go see? And I'll just wait. If names pop into my mind, I write them down and I make that a part of, okay, well, I'm asking God to direct me to be the Lord. And so he's putting things in, in my mind. I'm going to go ahead and do these things. Sometimes there's no fireworks involved in the application of those things. I call them like, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm doing great. All right, well, good. Well, have a great day. And other times I feel like I'm like, okay, I think, I think this is exactly what the Lord intended. They needed to be called today. It's just an application of saying, God, my life is in your hands and you're the Lord. How do I live in light of that? The third thing is this, and last, is that Christ will send everyone who calls on his name. You see in verse 14 through 17, he says this this series of questions. Well, how is anyone going to call upon him if they don't believe? And how do they believe if they've not heard? And how are they ever going to hear if people aren't preaching? And how is someone going to preach if they're not sent? And then he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And then verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing to the word 
of Christ. The point, I believe, is this, is that if you have called upon Jesus as Lord and now enjoy his righteousness, he desires to send you. There are a lot of people saying, I just don't feel called. I don't know how you take that to the judgment seat of Christ when he's written. I am giving you the Holy Spirit to be my witness here, there, and beyond. When he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, how does a believer say, I'm not called? I'm not sent. Now, you may not be sent to be a career missionary, but there is not a believer over which Christ is Lord over them that he does not send them somewhere. If Jesus is our Lord, you have been commissioned to go. It may be across this room, it may be across the street, it may be across our city or state or country or world. And he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring that good news. In other words, it, isn't it interesting how... how no, 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 I'll, I'll say it now that I've done all that. It's interesting to me how people like to take pictures of their feet, in particular at the beach. You know, they're on the chair and they're like, you know... I, I never have got that, but that's, that's, that's between you, right? And, and you're... 500 Facebook friends. Um, well, what's interesting is this, is that we typically talk about beautiful feet as feet that are well tanned and clean and manicured and painted and soft. And the Bible never describes those kind of feet as beautiful. The feet that the Bible says are beautiful are the dirty ones and the worn ones and the tired ones from trekking to places with good news that could not be heard in any other way. A guy named Paul Brand, a missionary in India, one time told his mother, who was a missionary in India, when she turned 70 years old, that the mountains of India and missionary life had been hard on her body. And so she went around the house and she took down all the mirrors in her home and for the next 20 years served without a mirror. But when she died in her 90s, the villages gathered all through the mountains to bury a beautiful woman. If you are saved, then you will also be sent. It's that simple. And so the application to this last point is this, is let's yield to Christ's authority in sending us. Don't fight it. It's in your best interest. You see, part of Israel's failure in the Old Testament was secluding themselves from the very people that God had called them to reach. So let's not put parameters around God's authority in sending us. Let's rather say, God, here I am. Send me. Send me to the unreached people. Send me to my neighbors. Send me across the street. Send me to the urban neighborhoods in our own community. Send me across the office. Send me to the telephone today. You see, he concludes in the last three verses by saying, no, Israel did hear. And it was a message that could be understood because there are Lots of Gentile nations that heard this same message and they did respond in faith. They simply refused to listen to the megaphone of God's grace. And so this morning as we look into the mirror of Israel's history, I implore you to call on Jesus today. Lay down your arms and your works and yield to God's provision in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace in our life. Thank you that you have provided so much, so freely for us in Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that as we, as we consider these things, Lord, we want to respond not only in singing of your greatness and your goodness, 
But God, as we, even as we leave this place, Lord, to be able to go consciously aware that you're sending us as your people into the world. And so, God, we do love you. I pray that you would work in each person's heart even now as we consider your call upon our life. Thank you for your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.